Welcome to The Flipside with Her Black Book, a podcast powered by Samsung Galaxy and presented by Pop Sugar Australia. I'm Julie Stavanya. And I'm Sally Sassi. Together, we're the founders of premium shopping and discovery app, Her Black Book, where you can find a curation of exclusive deals, cashback promotions, and new arrival alerts from all your favorite brands. Our app, Her Black Book, is available for download on iOS and Android now. Every Thursday, we'll be in your ears delivering honest, insightful interviews and action-driven conversations with our diverse lineup of influential guests across business, brands, and technology. We are lifting the lid on the thrills and spills that come with building and working within a tech-driven business. At the end of each episode, we'll deliver our listeners a very special exclusive offer from our Her Black Book brand partners. This week's guest is the man who is on a mission to untrash the world by removing single-use plastic from your kitchen, laundry, and bathroom. He's Mike Smith, the founder of Zeroco, or as he calls himself, a used pouch salesman. Today, Zeroco holds the record for becoming the most funded Australian Kickstarter campaign and has so far stopped more than one million plastic bottles ending up in landfill. Mike joins us now. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. Hello, Thanks Mike. So much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We are going to go straight into it. We want to hear the Zeroco elevator pitch. <laughs> okay. Start the clock now. Go. We're on a mission to solve the global single-use plastic problem by doing two things. Stopping single-use plastic being made in the first place and funding large-scale ocean cleanups. So we do that by making a range of personal care and home cleaning products, stuff that every Aussie household uses every day in their house, shampoo, conditioner, laundry liquid, detergent, um, deodorant, and we deliver it direct to Aussie homes minus all of the single-use plastic. So in your first Zeroco order, you get a set of what we call forever bottles and some refill pouches. So you, re- you, you, you fill up your forever bottle with your refill pouch, then you send your empty refill pouch back to us so we can clean it, refill it, and send it back out to another customer. I already knew that Zeroco was preventing a lot of plastic being made in the first place by refilling the pouches, etc. But did I just hear you say, and I did not know this earlier, that you're also funding ocean cleanups? Yes. So the forever bottles that we send you are made from what we call OBL, which is ocean beach and landfill diverted plastic. So we officially started shipping products to customers about 18 months ago now, and we've already pulled over 1.2 million water bottles worth of rubbish out of the ocean and off Aussie beaches. That is amazing. I literally have goosebumps hearing about the impact your business has already made. Tell me, Mike, what actually inspired this idea in the first place? Rewind back to 2017, I had a, um, another business, a winemaking company called Cake Wine. Um, I decided to sell that business and I convinced my now wife, Alyssa, to, um, to pack up our lives and go on a crazy once-in-a-lifetime adventure around the world. The brief was to go to the most remote and far-flung corners of the planet to literally get as far off the tourist trail as we could and get in deep into wilderness, basically. Um, so we went to some crazy places. We basically spent about 18 months um, trekking and hiking and living in a tent. Um, we trekked along the border of Afghanistan and Tajikistan for about a month. Wow. Um, we went to North Korea. We went to Kamchatka in the far northeast of Russia. Um, you know, we went to some super crazy wild places. And um, I was just blown away by the amount of plastic and just rubbish more broadly that I saw in some pretty remote parts of the world. Um, and I was, I was deeply affected by it. So I came back to Australia in 2018, and I said, 
as woefully unqualified as I am, I'm going to try and solve this problem. Um, so that's what I've been doing for the last two years now. That is amazing. Was it years of R&D? How did it, you know, how long did it take you to get to market once you came back and had that idea? We got back to Australia in March of 2018. We got married in April. Um, we moved back in with my parents into my childhood bedroom so we could save um, every penny that we had, um, not paying rent, so we could put everything we had into the business. And um, in, we then launched a Kickstarter campaign, I think about eight months after that. So I think it was in October 2018. No, hang on, October 2019. I've got a question for you. While you're thinking of that date, you you jumped to the Kickstarter campaign, which we have heard and we now know was phenomenally successful. But before you did that, did you try to pitch this to other investors first or was that your first port of call? Yeah, that's a a great question. And and I could spend an hour talking about it. (laughs) The the short story is I pitched this idea to every single investor, VC fund, accelerator program, private equity company that I could find. Um, I must have pitched to 100 people and every single one of them said no to me. Um, It became a bit of a running joke about how I could just not get anyone to support this idea. You know what's the saddest thing about that is that over the last several years, you've seen this huge move to impact funds. Like this is literally what everyone is saying they want to invest in. This is obviously what the world needs right now. And even with this enormous movement, I mean, even most general funds now have, you know, kind of um, a quota to try and actually contribute to that cause and you still struggled. Totally. And and not, I'm not going to point the fingers at anyone, but still to this day, not a single impact venture fund has invested in ZeroCo, um, whilst multiple other non-impact ones have, which is quite interesting. You know, Mike, you mentioned before about obviously getting all these no's. There are so many um, people in startup businesses who are going through the exact same thing. How do you keep going? Because it has to, um, you know, be a little bit demoralising after a while. What is some advice that you can share with our listeners as to how do they just keep going and not give up? One, one of the things that I did very early on when I was in this early pitching phase was I grabbed a piece of paper and put it up on my bedroom wall. And every single, straight after I had a meeting, if someone gave me a no, I just wrote their name on this list and I had this big long list of no's. You had a blacklist. Of all the people, <laughs> yeah, of all the people that I, I said to myself, I'm going to prove every single one of you wrong. And it actually became a, a point of motivation for me, not a, not a kind of um, disappointment thing. Yeah. Um, and every day I'd look at the list and be like, okay, that's another person that I've got to prove that this thing will work. Um, and I quickly realized that, if you're trying to scale any kind of business or venture, you are going to get people telling you every single day why it won't work, why it's not a good idea, why you're not the person to pull it off. And I just learned really quickly that every single no gets you one step closer to a yes. Yeah. And so I just... Right, just kept going. Julie, make sure we start our own blacklist. <laughs> I love it. And well, you're right. You use it you, to fuel, you yeah. know, to, I, I like that, fuel the motivation. Um, yeah, so do you have like a little imaginary party in your head where, you know, you're like fast forward five years and you're, you know, like having this amazing time and you're just like all those people are outside, they can't get in? Yeah, <laughs> I have a I have a question <laughs> for you. Out of the ones who said no, are any of those ones now on board? Or have yes. they tried to come on board and you've now rejected them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes and yes. Yes to both of those questions. Tell me how good did that feel? <laughs> it was it, it was pretty nice, I have to say. Um, I'm not a like vengeful or vindictive person, but to have the power position massively flipped from, you know, at a moment in my life when I really, really needed people 
to believe in me and, and put the money in to help us scale it and then saying no to then fast forward 12 months and we've got massive traction and runs on the board and, and they've come back and said, you know, we'd love to invest now. And then for us to be in a position where we had other backers who, who had believed in us and, and be able to say no to people um, because we didn't need the money. It was nice, I have to say. Like, I'm a human and I have human emotions and, and that kind of was nice. I love that. Um Going on in regards to the funding, you obviously, or Zero Code became the most funded Kickstarter campaign in Australia. Mm-hmm. Did you feel the pressure to fast track the success of the business after that? Massively, yeah. So I put $100,000 of my own money in to start the business. That was all the money I had left after selling my last company and going around the world for 18 months. Um, and that didn't last very long. I knew it wasn't going to last very long because, you know, to build a business like Zero Code is, is quite capital intensive. You know, we've got 20 products now. We built world-first technology to clean couches. We're going up against multi-billion-dollar companies, right? Yeah. Um, so I kind of knew – I budgeted that I would need a million bucks to get this off the ground mm-hmm. properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, by being able to go and do $750,000 in pre-orders off the back of a Kickstarter campaign, plus the hundred grand I put in, that got us pretty close to the million bucks, um, which just gave us the runway to actually go and build all the products, develop all the packaging, do the ocean cleanups, recycle the plastic – get the thing into the world, basically. Not many people um, are even, you know, really know the details behind crowdfunding. Tell us what are the pros and cons between VCs and crowdfunding? Yeah, okay. So there's, there's kind of a, a nuance here. So there's two types of crowdfunding, right? There's um, the Kickstarter model, which is where you are essentially pre-selling a product to customers, which is what we did to get the business off the ground. We had 7,000 Aussie households pre-ordered a box of our products. Um, but they didn't get any ownership stake in the company. And then fast forward two years and the Australian government changed its legislation to enable private companies to raise money from the public without being listed on the ASX. Um, And so that's when equity crowdfunding was kind of invented. And so we went and did an equity crowdfunding campaign last year as well. So um, I think there's pros and cons to both, right? Kickstarter's really great because you don't have to give up any share of your company. You still get to own 100%. Um, but you're getting people to pre-order the product to fund your production, which is really great. But it also gives your competitors a really um, a long lead time to be able to copy you, right? Because it typically takes a Kickstarter campaign 12 months to get the product into the market. If it's successful, you're giving copycats 12 months to, to kind of copycat you. Um, and then with equity crowdfunding, um, the, the, the difference there, so I guess going to a VC fund is that you have the opportunity to engage a much broader group of people Mm. um, in your business and to become business partners, right? And so we ended up having, I think it was about 3,200 of our existing customers became our business partners. They bought shares in our company and now own a chunk of the business. And we talk about them and think about them as our business partners now, um, which is really, really powerful to have a big, big group of people who are not just aligned with your mission, but are also financially aligned with your company. But they're also become your biggest advocates and they're ambassadors. So you've actually got 3,000 you know, families out there who are talking about your product, telling other people about it. I mean, they couldn't be more invested in, you know, kind of sharing that news. That's right. So that's a, an amazing upside of, of, you know, going broad like totally. that. Totally, totally. And, and I think there are pros and cons. Like if you go and raise money from a VC fund, you can obviously raise a, a really large amount of money um, and only have a couple of voices at the table, right? Um, but with, with equity crowdfunding, you get the added benefit of a community. And if you do a really good job of, of nurturing that community, it can become really powerful for you. So we've done both. 
we, we raise money from VC and we raise the money from, from the crowd as well. So a lot of people talk about, you know, having, um, you know, fewer people on the cap table. It's less people to update, less questions. It's, you know, really time intensive updating shareholders. You know, it's a huge responsibility. What is it like when you do have that many people? Is there kind of sort of unit trust situation where there's one person who disperses all the information is the, you know, kind of channel through it, through which everything is communicated or yeah. do you have to answer 3,000 emails? <laughs> we, we were really clear up front with everyone about what the communication would look like. Um, and I just made everyone really, you know, just was really um, honest with everyone and said, if each of you email me once a week, I'm going to have 3,500 emails <laughs> in my inbox every week. Yeah. And that won't be very productive for our business. So yeah. please, please, please don't email me every week. Um, we've set up a, a Facebook group, uh, you know, a private Facebook group for all of our shareholders where we update them on key things that are happening in the business. We do, you know, email comms out to them on a monthly basis, updating them on the business. Um, but really, we, we were quite clear that it was going to be, um, you know, they were becoming shareholders, but they weren't becoming management, right? They're not yeah. going to be um, brought into the, the key decisions of the business. We've got a management team and a board in place to do those things. Yeah. Um, but we were going to be, they, they were going to be kept abreast of the big decisions that we make and get first access to things like new products that we're going to develop. Um, and most importantly, you know, invite them to be part of the mission and get them involved in beach cleanups and all of those kind of things. Love that. So you have been phenomenally successful with raising the capital, like the record for crowdfunding in Australia. You have a beautiful product. Like not only is it, you know, purpose-driven, but it actually looks great, really lives up to this like modern branding that everyone is really, you know, kind of interested in. Um, you know, the product is fantastic product. I also happen to know that you did a really terrific guerrilla marketing, a stunt if you would call it, guerrilla <laughs> marketing. Um, tell us about that. You know the one I'm talking about, right? There's been so many. I'm talking about, uh, let's Involved say, the, the famous, the harbour. We're talking prime ministers. We're talking oh, yeah, okay, celebrities. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think um, in the early days of starting any business, you, you don't have any money to do anything, right? Like even when we raised our first million bucks, that all went into producing the product and yeah. building technology and getting the thing off the ground. So we didn't have any money to spend on marketing. Um so I think as a founder in an early stage startup, you've just got to be creative and think about ways to earn free media, right? Mm. Um, and the best way to do that as a founder is just to be a bit silly and put yourself yeah. out there into the public domain. Um, and on top of that, we also realized very early on that um, the best way to engage people when you're trying to solve a really big, daunting problem is to not bash them over the head about the problem and don't try and guilt people into you know, action. We kind of believe that if you can make someone smile or better yet have a laugh while they're doing something good for the planet, then you've got a pretty good chance to keep them engaged. So, you know, we from day one just thought, how do we make this fun? Like, we don't want to get too serious about this big problem in the world. Let's take the piss out of ourselves. Let's take the piss out of the mission and do silly, funny things to make people engage with it. So, you know, whether that's me dressing up in a dolphin suit and going into shopping centres, um, whether that's mean wearing silly wigs um, <laughs> or, you know, kayaking in Sydney Harbour with Malcolm Turnbull with a lifetime supply of single-use plastic strapped to us. Um, just any funny, silly, dumb thing to get into. How did you get Malcolm Turnbull, you know, is he your secret bestie? That's like, what we're asking. Give us the actual details. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, look, I think this has been one of the big learnings for me on this journey is if you don't ask, you don't get. Yes, and I think a lot of founders... That are too scared to go and ask for ridiculous things from people. Um, so 
So I don't know Malcolm Turnbull personally. I'm not from a politically connected family. Um, I grew up on the North Coast in a small town. I'm a public school kid. Like, I, I have no right to ever go kayaking with the former Prime Minister of Australia, right? <laughs> you have um, every right. But we, we had the idea to do this stunt in Sydney Harbour to show what a lifetime supply of seaweed plastic looks yeah. like. And so we thought, who can we get to help us get the media attention? And Malcolm Turnbull came to mind because he loves kayaking on the harbour and he's the ex-Prime Minister. And if we got him, we'd probably get the media. So we put the feelers out. Um, to see if anyone could get in contact with Malcolm Turnbull. We ended up getting his email address from a friend of an investor. And um, I just cold emailed him one day and said, Hi, Malcolm, my name is Mike. Um, I've got this crazy idea. Would you be interested in coming and kayaking in Sydney Harbour to raise awareness about single-use plastic? And um, he wrote back. And then, like, the next day he called me on his mobile. And we've got a video of it. Like, of me talking to Malcolm Turnbull on the phone in our shitty little office in Byron Bay. And then a week later, we were kayaking in Sydney Harbour with Malcolm Turnbull and Sunrise were doing a live broadcast of the event. It was pretty wild. What so an good. awesome bloke. You did mention shitty little office. Um, Startup life, as you know, isn't always glamorous. We are huge fl- uh, fans of Zero Co, brand partners um, through the app. But tell me about your very first office. So my very first office was actually my um, sister's childhood bedroom. So... <laughs> I convinced my wife to move back in with my parents. I was 35 at the time, which is a pretty wild Can I just say, brand new wife. your wife is a keeper. Like, she went and <laughs> trekked the world with you, and then she moved into the in-laws. <laughs> yeah, I love she's it. the best. She's the best person ever. <laughs> um, yeah, so we moved into, like, my childhood bedroom, and that's where we were living, <laughs> straight after getting married. And then the room next door, which is where my sister's childhood bedroom was, we cleared it out and set up two desks. That's where we worked. Like literally those old fold-out tables. My parents were school teachers. So those old like exam tables, we had two of those in the room. And that was it. That was our office for like the first million, first year. And did she work with you? Does she still work with she you? She did, yeah. Is she still in the business or is it like there was there a point at which you said like, okay, no, you still spend She's still here. all day and She's all night together. <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> it's amazing. It's awesome. Um, we don't really work together. So she's in the product team. Yeah. Um, and so she, I've got a COO, Sandy, who runs the product team. So yep. my wife, Alyssa, doesn't report to me, which I think is super, super important <laughs> if you're going into business together. Um, so we don't really work on any projects in, in the business day to day. So um we often get home and go, what did you do today at work? Like, yeah. We're kind of not that connected, which I think is a good thing. You did all of the hard work to get through a Kickstarter. You've got this amazing idea. The public wants it. And then COVID. Mm, that was great. I know, right? How's that? <laughs> Thanks. So you tell us, how did that like impact? What what delays or, you know, what, how did it impact you? Yeah. So we, so the first Kickstarter campaign, I've got the dates right now. It was October 2019. We ran the Kickstarter. Yep. Finished in November 2019. We got straight on a plane, went to Indonesia, did our first cleanup. We pulled 500,000 water bottles worth of rubbish out of the Java Sea, got that plastic processed and turned into our bottles, came back to Australia in January, and then March, COVID happened, yeah. right? Um, and I think lots of people forget how crazy COVID was, like that first six months. If you had an international supply chain, you were screwed big time. Um, And so our lead time, like we were supposed to deliver product to customers in June of that year of 2020. It didn't get, our product didn't get to market until December. So it was six months late. 
because everything just went wrong, right? Everything that could possibly go wrong did go wrong during that, that period. The flip side with Her Black Book is brought to you by the new Samsung Galaxy Z Fold 4 and Z Flip 4. It's time to unfold your world. Available now at samsung.com. Um, but it was, a, it was a, actually a really powerful learning moment for us. And how do customers, um, how do they react? Can you get angry at a purpose-driven company? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it gave birth this, this really crazy moment, which was the most difficult six months of my professional career, hands yeah, down. It yeah. was absolutely wild. There were probably 10 moments in that six months where the business could have collapsed, totally like game over before we even got product yeah. to market. And, and what I learned from that is, is the power of radical transparency, which mm-hmm. is you know, a, a kind of philosophy that Ray Dalio yep. kind of burst into the world with his book Principles, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and I'd read that book, I was kind of reading that book at the time, and it just really resonated with me, this concept of pushing transparency to an uncomfortable place and like sharing more than people expect you to share with them. And so literally every week I just started doing a video and an email to the 7,000 people who pre-ordered our product and just telling them like the warts and all reality mm. of all of the shit that was going down and all of the problems that we were being faced with. And the more that we pushed that, the more transparent we were, the more honest we were, the more open with our sharing of information, the more that people rallied behind us. And it actually was this moment where these first 7,000 people who initially believed in us during that year that it took us to get the product to market, their belief and faith in us just grew tenfold because they realize that we're just everyday people and mm. we're making mistakes every day and we're trying to solve a big problem and we're coming up with the solution in real time. And so that's been a super powerful lesson and something that we've continued to do every day of this business is just be radically transparent with every single person that comes into contact with us because we've got nothing to hide. And so my view is if you don't have anything to hide, don't hide anything at all. Sounds like you handled that perfectly. Um, is there anything you don't do perfectly? There's heaps of stuff we don't do perfectly. <laughs> I think there's this perception with when you when companies grow really quickly and have a great public persona, um, people think that everything is perfect mm. inside the company, right? And it's never the case. There's always shit going wrong. Um, there are heaps of things we don't do perfectly. We don't do ocean cleanups perfectly just yet, you know? Um, there are so many things we can get better. We don't do um, our full end-to-end supply chain perfectly just yet. I don't manage people perfectly just yet. You know, there's, there's so many things that we don't get right every single day. But again, going back to radical transparency, we, we own all of that stuff. And we just say, we're not, we're not perfect. We're probably never going to be perfect, but we strive to be better every day. There's nothing, I just think there's no other way to be. You just got to be yourself. I absolutely agree with you. There was a TikTok that went viral recently and it was about like, what are the misconceptions around working in the tech industry? And there was this like, perception that the tech industry has got all these perks, right? It's like this like adult daycare and it's like super cushy. But the reality is it's like super stressful. He uh, used the term, you know, constantly an existential crisis, you know, because things can go either way. And that is true, um, I think, about any startup as much as it is about the, you know, kind of technology industry, which is moving super, super quickly. But yeah, it's difficult. Like you want to obviously portray and share all of the milestones and the goals that you're kicking with, you know, customers, with, you know, shareholders and investors. Um, but it's an enormous responsibility starting any business, especially a new one that's really innovative, mm. you know, in, in the case of Zero Co, because there's no playbook. You're literally having to grow a business while 
learning everything it's going to take, writing the rule book at the same time, creating processes. Sound familiar, Sally? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, Mike, Julie and I, we've now been founders for over 10 years, having started Style Runner back in 2012. I know that you've owned um, a couple of startups yourself as well. What are some great tips for our listeners in terms of, you know, the startup life? What are some things that you can share with them to hopefully help them on their journey? That's a great question. How to, how to condense 15 years of <laughs> into a picky little piece of advice. Yep. <laughs> I think um, it's something that I've had to learn the hard way. You have to look after yourself. I think yep. founders have a tendency to work themselves into the ground mm-hmm. and to let their business consume them and, and take up every single waking moment of their focus and attention. And I think there are undoubtedly times in your journey where you need to do that, but you also need to be able to step away and take a proper break. It's, it's something I've, I've learned with this business is one of the most powerful things that I can do to leave this company is to go and have a holiday, you know, yeah. and take two weeks away and turn off my email and, and get out of the detail and just decompress and then come back and, and work 10 times smarter. Absolutely. Um, I think that's something that founders don't do enough of. I think that's something that often comes as a second time or third time founder. You learn that, you know, the business won't fall apart. It won't break if you step away. And coming back reinvigorated with fresh eyes, um, as you said, you know, that's more power to the business um, as opposed to kind of staying in it and then obviously reaching your absolute stress point. How do you decompress? So apart from holidays, like there's stress every single day and every single week, right? What do you do? What's your usual go-to, you know, sort of... When I'm I, I, um, oscillate very wildly between my best self and my worst self, right? Mm. Um, and, and when I'm my best self, it is making sure I get out of bed and exercise every day, go for a run or do something, go surfing, just yeah. get the body moving and get some exercise in. Um, and then meditate for 10 or 15 minutes when I get home from, from work. I think they're the two things that I find keep me sane. When I'm at work, I don't do either of those things. I get up at 6 o'clock and go straight to work and then work till 6 o'clock at night and then go home and lie on the lounge and be exhausted, you know? <laughs> that's, that's the brutally honest truth of the best and, ver- best and worst version of me. I think that's the case for many of us. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> now, I wanted to know, you started with home cleaning products and you've moved into personal care, which is a highly mm. competitive and saturated category. Has the new range been well-received? Yes, um, amazingly well. About 50% of our existing customers have now purchased the, the personal care brand. And we've only launched a couple, three months ago now, um, which is amazing. It's, it's making up about 30% of our revenue now, which is awesome. Um, and I think it's, it comes down to a couple of things. One is that we've spent a lot of time developing really great products. So from day one, product was really key to what we did. And so we have a really strong um, set of, I guess, belief from our customers that we do focus on great quality products. And because of that, making the jump from cleaning to personal care, people have trusted us and believed in our ability to deliver great product. And we've done that and people are you know, raving about our products. Um, and I think the other thing is that we, we are hand on heart, genuinely the only company in the world that's now delivering personal care products in the format that people want, which is liquid, in a single-use plastic-free um, way, basically, right? Um, so lots of other companies have got to try and solve the problem with, for example, in shampoo and conditioner, the, the kind of solution is to get people to use a shampoo bar, which is essentially a cake of soap which I don't know how you feel about it. We, we've trialled them. They just don't work that well, particularly conditioner. It just doesn't work in a, in a bar format. So 
you know, we've got liquid shampoo and conditioner and we give it to customers in liquid form and we solve the Sindri's plastic problem for them. So you built a machine that essentially washes these pouches. You had to custom build this. Like, paint the picture for me. What does it look like? Is it massive? Is it the size of a, like a fridge or a bus? <laughs> um, it's somewhere between the two. It's probably like a large van. Yep. Like a, like a Toyota Hiace or something like that yeah. is about the size of it. My, my hairline has receded about an inch since <laughs> the day that we started building this machine up until today. It, it is a never-ending headache. Um, Lucky you have that wig next to you. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I now comprehend what I didn't two years ago, which is that cleaning a, cleaning a piece of used packaging, whether it's a pouch or a bottle or whatever, is deeply complex and a lot more complicated than I initially thought, which is why no one else has gone and done it anywhere in the world because we've spent two years building this piece of world first technology and making countless mistakes and having to go back to the drawing board, scrapping the whole thing, starting again. Um, it's been a it's been a nightmare, but we've got to the place where it's now operational. It's scaling out. Um, we've had 270,000 pouches returned to us from customers now, which are cleaned and going into circulation. Amazing. Um, so we got there in the end. The not knowing what you're going to get yourself in for is like part of the magic of getting things started. Like if you actually knew everything that you're going to come up against, you would be, you know, so it's the naivety of, you know, and so you just get started and then, you know, you face each problem at a time and you can actually get it done. Totally. Um, but it would probably turn a lot of uh, would-be founders off if they knew everything they'd have to, to get through. So something yeah. to that. Just go in blindfolded, basically. You'll, you'll solve it when you totally. get to it. And I, I think that's why lots of big companies struggle with innovation, right? Because before a big company goes and puts any money on the table to do something, they get a team of like strategists and lawyers and people to sit down and think about every possible thing that could go wrong. And by the end of that process, it's like this, this has got such a slim window of working that we're not going to do it. Whereas when you're a startup, you just don't, you don't even acknowledge any of the things that could go wrong because everything could go, go wrong. And exactly. so even if there's this little slither of opportunities, like, okay, Take there's it. a way that like, it might work. Let's just go and do it. Completely agree. I think it's the opposite view of that. This is the slender window that's going to work is a founder sees that window and they see everything else as like an obstacle that gets you closer. And that window just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Like you'll, totally. you'll get over every obstacle, you know, under, around it, et cetera. But um, you will just keep getting closer to that window and keep making it a larger probability. Um, and I think that's a thing, right? It's like not fearing failure. And, you know, even if you try and it doesn't work out, it's pivot. There's always opportunity. Um, and I think when you go into startup life, coming in with that mentality of, you know, if someone says no, don't worry about it, get back up. Kind of back to the original point with all the investors saying no initially. But same thing, if you go to work on something and it doesn't work, well, let's pivot and change course. But um, I think that once you have that mindset from the beginning, it makes the journey that little bit easier. Still difficult, but it makes it a little bit easier. Yep. Agreed. So you are the sole founder of this. You don't have a co-founder, even though your, your wife is in the business. Sally and I just mentioned, you know, kind of being able to bounce off of, off of each other and having different strengths. Being a yep. founder is lonely. We all, you know, we've heard that many times. You know, how do you deal with that? Do you have someone that, is it your wife that you, you know, kind of bounce things off of? Do you have like mentors? Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. So my, my previous two businesses I had partners in. Yep. Um, and... At the end of both of those journeys, it was just driving me crazy that I had to have this, like, a committee yeah. to make decisions. Yeah. And so for this business, I said, I'm just, I want to do this myself. I want to be 
the master of my own destiny and be able to make the big decisions and live with the consequences one way or another. Yeah. Um, so I've kind of found it liberating, to be honest. Um, but I've built a really great leadership team. I've got a COO and a CFO. Um, and, you know, I use the, a, a monthly leadership forum to discuss the big ideas. And I've also got a really amazing board that we've built to, to then check the more crazy, ambitious thing that we want to do just to make sure that, you know, we're not going to drive the bus off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of crazy and ambitious goals, I want to know what is next for Zero Co. This could be a world first exclusive. You guys might be getting a hot tip on a really big thing here. Woohoo! Um, Tell us. We are about to announce we are going to be putting our money where our mouth is. We're going to be writing a $100,000 check that we're going to put into the 100 year cleanup kitty. And we are going to be inviting our industry partners, our competitors, our friends um, to match or beat our investment. We're going to try and raise a million dollars to go and fund the cleanup of 20 million water bottles of rubbish in the next 12 months. That, that is amazing. is phenomenal. I literally have goosebumps. I actually think, and I'm um, placing my bets, I think you are going to smash the one million target. You have to. Hopefully. We've, we've done all the numbers, and, and based on spending two years doing cleanup, we... Um, for every million bucks we raise, we can pull 20 million water bottles of rubbish out of the environment. That is incredible. But what about people that want to contribute to that, that don't have, they can't match the 100,000? Like, is there a way that, you know, individuals can contribute? Because everyone wants to get more, you know, plastic out of the ocean. Yep. So we'll be we'll be launching a public campaign as well. Phase one is getting big corporates to, yep. to put in big chunks of money. And then on the Zero Co website, we'll also be allowing um, everyday households to contribute to an ocean cleanup by... You know, putting a dollar in, putting five dollars in, putting ten bucks in, putting fifty bucks in, whatever you're comfortable, to help fund a bunch of cleanups. And we've got five big, massive, crazy cleanups that we're going to be doing in the next twelve months all around the world. And the the public will be able to contribute to each of those cleanup initiatives. That is amazing. I know that we would definitely um, do what we can from her black book in in terms of yeah. being able to help promote it and support it. Um, yeah, we'll support it through her black book, and we'll support it personally as well. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. So we are on board. I love it. Did we just pay for that exclusive groundbreaking news? <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> that makes you a very clever founder. There you go. <laughs> uh, love it. Um, love that you are on a mission to detrash the world, Mike. This is just absolutely phenomenal. Wish you continued success. Um, we are right here behind you, backing you. Zero Co has a super generous offer for our listeners. From now until midnight this Sunday, you can get $20 off Zero Co when you spend over 100 via the Herb Black Book app. To access the exclusive code and read the T's and C's, download the Herb Black Book app right now. It's available on iOS and Android. Yes, we are moving on to some quick fire questions now. Mike, what is your coffee order? I don't drink coffee. Ooh, what do you drink? I drink Earl Grey tea. Oh. Never would have guessed that. Well, you I like do not look like contrarian. an Earl Grey man, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's your death row meal? Death row meal. Ooh. Spaghetti bolognese. Nice. Who would play you in a movie? Oh, Seth Rogen. <laughs> ah, I like it. I see it. I see it. Um, what is your bad habit? I chew my fingernails. <laughs> There's a few of those in our office. <laughs> um, what is your go-to pump-up song? Bulls on Parade by Rage Against the Machine. 
Yes, I love a bit of rage. I love it. (laughs) Would you rather have more money or more time? More time. What is your favourite product in the Zero Co offering and why? The new deodorant is pretty amazing, I have to say. Um, That's probably my one that I'm most proud of from the solution that we've built to stop single-use plastic and just the, the quality of the product and the fragrance is epic. That wraps up this episode of The Flipside with Her Black Book, powered by Samsung Galaxy and presented by Pop Sugar Australia. Don't forget to download the Her Black Book app to discover more from your favourite brands. Thanks so much for tuning in. Listener.